I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is another episode of Bitches on Comics. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. This is part of our horror extravaganza month where we're doing extra episodes and, you know, talking about horror, which is what I like to do personally every month. But this month we're going to have extra episodes, extra horror, extra personalities, extra so welcome, welcome, welcome. And of course, I am your host, Sarah Century, and I am joined today by our wonderful guest who I'm going to have you introduce yourself. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Kei Ming Chang. Um, I'm a writer and a novelist. Um, I've written some previous books, uh, Bestiary and Gods of Want. And my forthcoming book is called Organ Meats. And it's kind of my first foray into horror in a way. I think all of my work has some horror elements. Um, but this right. one, definitely, I was like body horror all the way. I'm going to commit commit <laughs> deeply to that. Um, and I, I like to call myself a vampire ethnographer. <laughs> Um, because I'm obsessed with vampires and I'm very excited for summer to be over so that we can officially enter vampire season. Though I do like to kind of cultivate a vampire persona 20, 
just like 365 days a year. Um, yeah, that's oh, me. Nice. <laughs> well, this is an incredible intro because, of course, now my mind went in 17 different directions <laughs> of like, what questions? So many questions. Um, so, yeah, vampires. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are fun. Um, I am a huge vampire fan as well. Whenever I was very young, I remember watching the movie The Hunger, right, from the 80s. Um, So I was born the same year this movie came out, which means that it's 40 because I just turned 40. And it is still pretty amazing. (laughs) That Bauhaus soundtrack, you know, David Bowie, Susan Sarandon. Um, everything. So that I think was maybe my first time that vampire is really stuck in my brain, but I have watched mm-hmm. so many vampire movies and I, I don't know, you, there's no end in sight, right? Like, I think people will be like, oh, vampires are overplayed. And I'm like, I don't care. Oh, no, <laughs> no, no, I actually think interestingly, <laughs> we're in a moment where like vampires are back in a way that makes my adolescent self so extremely happy. And I don't know if we're having kind of a reliving the 2000s moment in like fashion and pop culture. And so it's kind of like Twilight era part two, which I love. Um, (laughs) I was very much that like 10 year old, 11 year old Twy Hard um, who like viciously (laughs) tore apart my friend group over like a team Edward versus team Jacob debate. Like it was it was seriously the most the most intense fight I've ever had. And we were perfectly divided down the middle. We, We were a group of four. We had two girls for Team Edward and two girls for Team Jacob. And I think we were like going to see New Moon in theaters or something. Um, and it was it was a it was a full on battle and um it was a it was a deep soul cracking debate. Um but yeah, I feel that era and um, you know, like the new interview with the vampire TV show is here, which mm-hmm. I love and it's so explicitly queer, which I love because it yes. feels very true to the books. Um, but yeah, and I was, I'm also really obsessed with, I call it Winona Ryder's Dracula, even though she's not the director of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but she might as well yes, be, come I, on. Yeah, and it's so funny. Other people are like, oh, you know, the couple of Dracula, the Gary Oldman. I'm like, no, it's the Winona Ryder Dracula. <laughs> I'm like, I need people to understand. I feel like my queer awakening was watching Winona Ryder in that movie. Um, and there's oh. just, yeah, there's like an element of, it's so romantic, but it's also so camp. And it's also, I don't yeah. know, there's just something about vampires. It's so funny because I feel like I remember like there was so much like anger and backlash with Twilight of like, oh, vampires shouldn't be sexy. Let's let's make vampires scary again. And I was I was like, and no, they've, al- they've always <laughs> been sexy. That's part of <laughs> that's part of their lore and their appeal. And I think part of what um it makes them so terrifying and also like delicious <laughs> to us. And what makes them so gay, honestly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like they're hot and yeah. people are like, oh no, they're like being too sexy. Get yeah. them out of here. And I'm like, well, yeah. as a queer person, I know how that feels. Yeah, it's <laughs> being very, asked like, yeah. to leave. It's like, oh, my hunger has alienated me from society. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. I was just talking actually with one of my friends uh, yesterday, literally, because she was talking about how she's reading Dracula for the mm. first time officially, right? And I read Dracula, of course, as like a very young child because I was a weirdo, frankly. And <laughs> so I just was as a kid, like, yes, this is the book I want to read. And I remember it's kind of changed so much over time for me, Mm. but I got to say that 
It just makes a lot more sense if Mina and Lucy are hooking up. And it also makes a lot more sense, like, just as a story, if Jonathan and Dracula are hooking up. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's like... These things just had to have happened in the story. I'm not saying that like all the other romances are less important. I'm just saying that these were also definitely romances that were happening in the book, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of how it feels. Yeah, and to it is me, kind so. of about like the blandness and the failures of heterosexuality. <laughs> it really <laughs> like, is. Yeah, because Mina is like, I want to make out with this dude, and he's all traumatized yeah, <laughs> from yeah. being in love with a dude and <laughs> Like, yeah, and then Dracula, of course, shows up, and it's like the ex that shows up at the party. You're like, oh no, Dracula's here now. Yeah, well, that's what I love about Winona Ryder's Dracula. <laughs> I will continue to call it that. <laughs> is I feel like it really goes there, um, and it's just it's so explicit about like the homoeroticism. Yeah. Um, yeah, because Mina and Lucy kiss in that movie. And I remember, uh, I you know, I'm sure plenty of straight people just watched that movie and it was just another moment in a movie that just went by the wayside for them. But for me as a kid watching that movie, it was just like, Bzing! like that is like yes. in my brain forever. Like right now, if you say those words like Mina and Lucy, the first yes. image that will come into my head yes. <laughs> is that one. So, yes. so it really is Winona Ryder. It is. It is. is. And I remember the line from the movie, and I don't know whether it's in the original book because I haven't revisited it in a while, but that line of like, I've crossed oceans of time um, to find you has always, that to me is very queer as well. This kind of time traveling, the sense of like, we're made possible by the future or we are creatures of the future um, or that like time is this like non-normative warped thing, I feel like is also so beautifully queer (laughs) yeah no it's like there really is something gay about time travel don't ask me to explain it there just is but I was gonna say too that really ties into your book like Mm. we've started off talking about one of the great literary classics (laughs) well let's say too because we talked about Twilight as well but um like we talked about one of the great literary classics and Dracula okay um but (laughs) I was gonna say that that this that was perfect that was I I Yes, you have brought me back to life with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you have a new book that's coming out. This should be going up right around the time that the book is hitting the stands officially. So, you know, um, time travel, organ meat, (laughs) where does it all connect? Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like I called this book kind of like the end of a trilogy, even though it's not really officially a trilogy. I wish, I wish I, <laughs> I had an inner <laughs> Stephanie Meyer that was writing like a, a group of, of four books in series. Um, right. But I think spiritually they're kind of a trilogy because they're very interested um, in the past and in premise. Um, so I think of these books almost as like facing backward in a way where in front of you is the past and behind you is the future. Um, But in that kind of orientation, it's also like kind of concerned with the future and the speculative future um, and the present as well. But they're just very, very obsessed with the question of premise, with the question of origin um, and kind of the creation myths um, that we inherit, but also the origins that we make for ourselves, which I think is very queer. I think queer mythology has always been and queer myth making has always been something of like very deep interest for me and that I'm very invested in. Because I, I, I'm, I'm always wondering, like, oh, is it possible to choose your ancestry? 
um, can you kind of create uh, your, yeah, your own lineage? Um, and what would that look like? What would chosen ancestry look like? Um, and in what ways is that a process of storytelling and invention and constant innovation? And I feel like also like the past is not static in, in organ meets as well. These stories that are right. being inherited because they're oral stories. They're constantly fluid and flexible and um, evolving. And they're very, very embodied, which is another thing I love about oral storytelling. It's like it's literally <laughs> it's literally inside <laughs> your meat and your organs and your flesh <laughs> and your brain. Um, and you see the ways in which the, these stories are like metabolized, um, but also... Um, inherited. Uh, there's also like this idea of like horizontal ancestry, um, which um, this poet Safia Hello talks about. And I love that idea that like these are two girls, but they're finding ancestry within each other. And they're both like the same age <laughs> um, and they're both right. like, the same generation, but they have found a, a sense of origin in each other. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're kind of tapping into something that was at the tip of my brain, I guess, whenever I was reading Organ Meats and thinking about how much autonomy plays a role in everything, right? Mm. Because it seems that struggling against lack of autonomy is so much of focus, I think, of my life, I guess. I'll just speak for myself, mm. you know, trying to establish autonomy and things like that. But I don't think I'm spoiling by saying, you know, the first line is we chose to be dogs. Mm. And I think that that is such a brilliant opening line. And I was kind of trying to play around with it in my head and be like, what exactly is happening in the scene? <laughs> right. Because there's a lot happening in the yeah. scene. But I was kind of just, you know, like, why is that such an amazing opening line? <laughs> and I think that it really does kind of establish the book like just in that mm. first stanza I think it kind of sums up what you were just saying a little bit where it's like we're ch you know these are two characters who are choosing their own kind of um everything I mean honestly yeah, <laughs> like they, yeah. it's like they've just decided to do everything their own way because even as saying oh we're gonna be dogs there's all of these parts where they're like we're not doing that exactly like a dog would or something yeah, right yeah. like I'm doing I, here's my spin on being a dog yes. actually yeah there is this like hybridity I think I'm really interested in like the porousness between all these different boundaries that they encounter and the way that they're like breaching all of these boundaries and kind of smearing their own borders constantly whether that's like oh the two of us separate entities actually were one entity or we are both girls and dogs <laughs> like there's this I don't know, calling together themselves. Maybe it's a bit Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> maybe it's a bit like uh, it. I mean, they do. One girl does literally build the other out of like fake organs. So <laughs> they are they're right, like a right. cobbling together. But I also think it's in a grander sense, like the storytelling itself is very cobbled together with all of these different origin stories, all these different oral stories. We have the chorus of dogs. There's a sense of like a patchwork mythology that is sustaining them um, and that they're, they're constantly forging um, into, into the future. Uh, and yeah, you're right. Like the opening line is so interesting to me because that's like one of the things that really never changed from draft to draft. Um, and Anita who says like, she's just such an assertive character, <laughs> um, which, yeah. which I really enjoyed. There's like this sense of like, I don't want to say dominion because that sounds over language because that sounds kind of maybe like more, more harsh, but right. There's this sense of like, yes, I am making these choices. It's almost like she's so committed to her, her own imagination. Mm. She's, she lives in a world that is entirely her imagination. And it's almost like, I mean, I felt this way as a kid where I was like, I'm not interested in real things. 
<laughs> like I'm only <laughs> interested in the imaginary because it's something that no one can ever take away from me and no one else can have right. dominion over and no one else can have authority over. And so for me, like the space of interiority and imagination, I feel like for these girls, that's even more real than any, you know, quote unquote material thing or real object in the real world, because all of those things, those don't belong to them. And those can be taken away from them at any time. But their imagination, right. it's like, it's like the ultimate safe space, but also danger space, peril space. <laughs> right. <laughs> because their imaginations are also incredibly dangerous and at times like really violent and really gory and like full of hunger. <laughs> this like very primal ancestral hunger. Um, so that's really fun to <laughs> yeah, play around with. <laughs> biting people. Yeah. Biting people very early in the book just to be like, well, that's what dogs do. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Peeing through fences, pooping through fences—it's all—it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the character Anita, as you were saying, has a very strong personality. Every moment that you're reading, you know her parts. I'm always just like kind of in awe, I guess, of that <laughs> character. But there's that scene where it's just like, oh, well, I need like a week to decide if I'm going to be able to commit my entire life yeah. to you. And she's like, oh, week, yeah. oh, week, yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. I bring it up only because it stuck out to me as being particularly amazing. I love that part of the book. It's like, that's very early in the book. So yeah, just readers, just so you know, this book is full of that. Like where you're just like, that's my favorite part of the book. And then you read three pages and you're like, actually, we're in a whole new book. Actually, I didn't even know we were going in this direction. But that impatience mixed with sort of this sense of timelessness as everything you were saying is kind of... Um, you know, creating your own, having these kind of patchwork of different times, different stories, different perspectives, things like that. And there are things that will give you kind of a timeline of when these things are taking place, like they're they're in a car or something, you know, like, yeah, so I know that it's in a car time. So it would be the last hundred years or so. I think that most of your writing that I've read has that sense of timelessness. Mm. And I think that it might be connected to what you're saying about, you know, kind of trying to build a new way of looking at the world, right? Because yeah. it's like, well, you have to take parts of the old world, obviously. Some parts are great, <laughs> but it's like kind of moving forward with it in this way that makes me be like, I, could, I feel like this book could have been written at a lot of different times mm. in history, kind of, yeah. you know, with minor changes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love that because I'm very interested in worlds that are not yet here or worlds that haven't yet arrived, um, which is interesting because I talked about the past, but um, even like the ways that I, I feel like I'm writing about the past and their origin, their ancestry, I feel like is kind of future oriented or kind of timeless. And I feel like one part of it is my love for folklore, my love for myth. Um, and right. I remember reading this this book of Chinese mythology, I think it's called the Handbook of Chinese Mythology. And in the introduction, the authors talk about how like mythical time is circular time, which I love so much because we have this like, oh, mm. linear capitalist time that we live right now because of the conditions of the world that we're, we're in, um, in the world that we're told is real. But there's this like mythical circular time where things are created and destroyed in this constant circular pattern. And I, I was really fascinated by that. And I feel like it's an interesting kind of like inversion too of like the idea of like, oh, the almost like biblical like garden of eden that we must go back to where even that feels like kind of linear whereas mythical time is like there isn't even really a past to go back to there isn't really anything that we left 
because it's constantly again it's like I don't know I think of like the star that's like exploding (laughs) and then creating itself and exploding and creating itself in a void all the time and so you know loss and grief and accumulation like it's all this this circular everlasting metabolizing (laughs) Uh, digesting to bring in some more organ <laughs> organ metaphors. Yeah. And I love that so much. And that really, I th- I feel like that really resonated with me as well in the ways that I think about like memory um, and dream worlds and like inheritance too. I feel like it's this very nonlinear thing and lineages too, even though it's called lineage, which is funny. I feel like it's also very nonlinear. Um, and that's partially what this book is really interested in. I think um, it's like creating a, a new anatomy <laughs> A new anatomy for like yeah. for time, uh, for history, uh, for friendships and family. <laughs> um, yeah, it's all yeah, body <laughs> bodybuilding, but not bodybuilding in the way that <laughs> that, that word usually means. It's like no, it's like here's a limb and here's a hand, and let's like stitch them together. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, what could be more body horror, more Frankenstein? You know. This is so rooted in kind of, you know, horror history. I mean, we mm-hmm. already talked about one of the greats, Winona Ryder's Dracula, famously <laughs> one of the greatest books of all time. But <laughs> I get the vibe that you know your way around literature, I guess is what I'll say. And so I was kind of wondering about that because you talk a lot about myths. Um, and then obviously, you know, there's kind of... Um, it's it's interesting because it's there is genre to it, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned body horror. It's very much a body horror book for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily just that, right? It's sometimes I'll watch something that's body horror and it's like, well, just like any other horror, it's about 15 different things mm-hmm. at the same time. There's all of this metaphor and, you know, subtlety and trying to express things that other fiction can't necessarily crack Mm. into right because you tune into different things for different reasons and if you tune into like a rom-com you don't necessarily want to have like an existential I mean maybe you do (laughs) but (laughs) but (laughs) it's hard to say but you know the horror is I'll say the realm where often enough we are kind of looking at these things that you wouldn't look at in other genres. Mm. Like we look at death, we look at, you know, uh, the horrible things that people can do to each other while still loving each other, which Mm. is something that comes up a lot, you know, obviously in um, bestiary. Do you have any thoughts to add on that? Yeah, I I love that. It's so interesting because for the longest time, I, I didn't know whether I, I could call myself a genre writer um, in a way or like a writer of speculative fiction. I just felt like, oh, that couldn't belong to me um, or that I had to follow very specific, you know, plot points or um, very specific tropes in order to kind of qualify as that. But actually, most recently this summer, I got invited to teach a speculative fiction workshop um, with Lambda Literary um, in, in Philadelphia. And that was such a, it was, it was such an anxiety. Speaking of existential, this is, it was very existential for me because I was like, oh my God, who am I? Am I qualified to do this? Um, and the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, why am I like gatekeeping these genres for myself when I don't even do that with the things that I read, um, which I feel like are very (laughs) like genre expansive and constantly again, that, like that feeling of like smearing boundaries, Uh, And I'm like, if I'm not doing that to other people, then why am I like policing myself in this particular way (laughs) and like gatekeeping myself Mm -hmm. in this particular way? And that entire experience was just such a revelation um, 
all the fellows were just so incredible. And everything they were writing, it was, it had these elements of genre and that were paying tribute very lovingly to genre. I feel like that's like what I was raised on. That was what made me want to become Mm -hmm. a storyteller. Um, It was kind of my, my reason for writing and existing, (laughs) Um, especially in my childhood and as an adolescent. Um, uh, And at the same time with this like real interest in, in language and in like unraveling ideas of like plot um, in a way that I felt like was very inspired by a lot of like literary fiction or what we consider literary. And it just made me realize like, oh, the non-existence of these categories, which in the end are just like marketing tools. I feel like genre really is just to to market. (laughs) Um, And how we can like all contain these, these multitudes. And yeah, and I realized, oh, horror is kind of at the heart of everything I write. Um, whether or not there are even speculative elements in it or whether there's like any actual, you know, blood, gore, and guts. So there usually is, to be honest, or some right. kind of bodily food <laughs> event of some kind. Um, and I remember reading, right. and I, I wish I could remember what book I read this in, but it was talking about how horror and humor at their heart have the same thing, which is transgression. And like the th- mm. things that make us laugh and things that make us feel horrified are those moments of transgression. And I love that so much because I felt like, oh, that is kind of at the heart of what I'm interested in writing about are these moments of transgression. And um, whether that's like humorous or horrific or a combination of both, I feel like that's what what is at the heart of the genre. Um, And I was also thinking too about how I feel like horror and wonder are very similar bodily sensations. Like when you look at something that's so wondrous, I don't know, like Aurora Borealis, I've never seen it. (laughs) Um, But I imagine... Um, or you look at something really horrifying, <laughs> like I remember, you know, like like pulling a clot of hair out of a drain and just like seeing how utterly disgusting that is. <laughs> um, there's <laughs> right. like this similar, it's like chills and this feeling of, it's almost like at that moment, the limits of your imagination have been, have been stretched or punched through or kind of pulled beyond um, what you thought it could contain. And it's so, it's, it's so embodied. I feel like horror is like, it's so hard to define as like, oh, here's the literary genre. Here's like an intellectual concept. Here's like a theory based concept. And all of those things are, of course, you know, I love reading those things and um, I, I love mm-hmm. those as well. But to me, it, it like kind of begins and begins and ends in the body. Yeah, I have a very expansive view of what horror is. I've been a horror fan since I was very, very young. Mm-hmm. And so my outlook is I include so, so many things in the horror genre where they don't necessarily belong. Yeah. I'll watch a movie and be like, well, that unsettled me. Therefore, it's yeah. horror, right? And yeah. it might just be like an art house film, you know, it, not, it yeah. need not actually have blood and guts or whatever. Um, although, you know, that's always a plus. But I was going to say that horror can really just kind of be anything. But for me, it's always whenever I want to make a point or tell a story and I know I can't do it anywhere else, right? Mm -hmm. Like I do a lot of like toxic relationship stories. And so if you were going to do those, I think in like a very straightforward telling, then it would just be an ugly relationship, Mm. right? And so it's like the way that it kind of turns into something that can be meaningful or metaphorical or can kind of indicate change on the horizon or things that you should and shouldn't do to other people Mm. and that kind of stuff. I think that 
adding horror to it in some strange way does make it a little bit more palpable to people mm. because it's the horror is oh though this is somebody lost an arm or so, you know like here's like whatever whatever <laughs> yeah. horror thing is happening somebody like a scary monster but you know for me it's like the horror seems to really always be the parts where we're looking at each other or ourselves more mm. than what you would and you know and and the bad parts of ourselves yeah, right yeah so i was thinking about that and that's why i was going to seg to and be like so to me like wuthering heights is kind of a horror yes. story. Oh, <laughs> you know it's like I'm there's a lot of obsessed with wuthering heights it, it, we're going to get there because you actually are bonafide actually obsessed with yes. it because I read, you know, you have a story that is inspired very much by it. So um, I wanted to talk about that first, maybe. And, you know, what are your thoughts, I guess, on the way that horror is kind of this realm where we're kind of, yeah, as you said, transgressive, right? Yeah. It's these moments where I don't know if you could pop it into a regular rom-com. Like, I don't know if you could pop it into yeah. an ordinary sci-fi movie or whatever. Yeah, but honestly, there are definitely some books that I've read that I'm like, this is not meant to be horror, but like the the, but the description <laughs> of this, this like heterosexual <laughs> happening oh, God. Is, is the true horror. Um yeah, yeah, I love I love what you're saying. I, I love what you're saying about it's almost like I feel like horror can contain the truth of the story. Um, it can be the, the vehicle for that truth in a way that kind of nothing else, like no other story element can. Um, yeah, and I remember, I, I think this is a quote from Sandra Cisneros, but she she um, she has this uh, quote about, um, oh, don't write about what you remember, write about what you can't forget, um, which I love. I feel like it's it teaches me to kind of like follow my impulses and my instincts in a way um, and to kind of follow bodily knowledge as like a form of of guidance rather than maybe like a more surface level um or more like here's what I should be writing about here's what people want here's right. what I've been told to write about I'm like following like a deeper sense of of hauntedness um and I I remember I I had a teacher named Trong Chen um who's a poet brilliant and he gave us this writing prompt I took a class with him and he gave us this writing prompt and told us I think he got it from someone else um, and, and he was like, oh, you know, all writing kind of springs from one of these prompts. And it was, um, what haunts you? What hunts you? What do you haunt? What do you hunt? Um, and that to me, I was like, oh, those are like kind of the ultimate questions of horror of the genre is <laughs> what haunts you and yeah. what do you haunt? What hunts you and what do you hunt? Um, and I feel like those questions are my touchstones and I constantly return to them. Um, and I think, Oh, so much of my writing springs from, oh, what what can I not forget versus what mm. I remember per se. It's about what kind of unbidden rises to the surface um, and, and consumes me. Um, and yeah, it's so interesting because I, I, I also remember um, being asked a question about, I, I don't know if this is like a, a Borges quote or a concept, but there's like this idea of like a public life, a private life and a secret life. Um, and I think I was asked like, which, which of those lives is, is your writing? Like, or, or what, where does your writing fit into those lives? And I was like, oh, it's so funny because I feel like writing is my secret life. Um, and it's also the most public part of me, <laughs> which is like an mm -hmm. interesting irony, but it is it when I'm writing, when I'm drafting and what it represents to me, it, it entirely is that secret life, um, where it's, 
it's this, yeah, it's this place. Again, I keep using the word like metabolize, but um, it is that place where I'm constantly like metabolizing and transforming the most kind of secret parts of me or secret questions that I'm asking about the world, the kinds of things that you can't necessarily bring up in like everyday conversation where it's like, hi, how are you? (laughs) And also I've been recently consumed with this like existential question about, (laughs) about what are, like, what are our origins? What are our creation myths? You know, like, so it's, I love the idea that there's this secret life that is like this endlessly expansive container for these questions. What you were saying about metaphor, um, I really love because I, I'm someone who's really obsessed with metaphor, maybe almost like a little too obsessed with metaphor. Like I'm definitely um, guilty of trying to cram like 50 metaphors into a sentence um, and trying to keep them all and being asked like, what's the hierarchy of importance here? I'm like, no hierarchy, all, all the metaphors, just my writing is just a tub. Equal importance. Yeah, it's like, it's just a, a Ross tub, sales tub of metaphors. Um, and that's Yes, I have this metaphor for the metaphors that I have. Exactly, exactly. It's like endlessly unraveling. Um, but I, I was thinking a lot about like, what is it that I love so much about metaphor and why I feel like if, if, if somebody was like, okay, write without metaphors, like be this very kind of spare writer. I don't know if I would be a writer because it's that, That'd be rough, yeah, yeah. because it's that sense of excess that I love so much. And to me, I feel like metaphor is casting a spell. Um, it, it is magic in a very literal sense for me. Cause like you get to make something into something like can I turn one of my parrots, you know, into the sun? I wish. <laughs> but on the page, mm-hmm. I can totally make that possible. It is true. It is entirely real. Um, it is casting magic in this way. And um, I feel like, again, it's like satisfying that childhood self that I is just like raised. The foundation of me is like a desire to, to make magic, <laughs> which I feel like all speculative fiction in the end is kind of about, you know, trying <laughs> to make magic. Um, sure. But also it's just, yeah, there's something so incredibly powerful about that. And maybe going back to your point on like autonomy and agency, there is a real like reclaiming of agency that can happen um, when that like magic is available or possible um, for you or for the characters on the page. Yeah, it reminds me of how with something like astrology or something, people will be like, well, that's fake. And it's like, that's not the point of astrology. Yeah. <laughs> like, nobody can, nobody is out here with like measurement tools trying to like quantify how accurate, you know, yeah. just just chill. Because a lot of times you're dealing with myths, stories, symbols. These are things that we've used forever and they still have meaning. So that means something, even if you can't quantify it. So I was thinking about that a little bit whenever I was reading through this Mm -hmm. and just being kind of like, yeah, I mean, stories tell you something regardless of if they really happened. It doesn't matter if things really happened. Who cares? (laughs) It's like you do, you know, like there's like, I and I actually, and I wanted to mention too, because I feel like there's a very interesting uh, kind of, uh, I guess, like, bridge or kind of like a meshing of real history mm-hmm. and kind of myth making right in your work and um you know I would love to hear more about that obviously but I was thinking too about how it's like they need not necessarily cancel each other out mm-hmm. right which is something that I always think about because it's like yeah I mean I want to know my history I want to know you know what happened mm-hmm you know, how we, how we can curb perhaps the mistakes of the past. Mm-hmm. But then it's also this idea of like, well, you know, the past never can tell you what the future is, mm-hmm. right? Like you can never know. 
cyclical time repetitions aside, like you still have that autonomy and that choice. Profound questions on the meaning of life. Like this is a no, I love questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I also agree with you of like when people are talking about astrology. I'm like, there are multiple what if it's just there are multiple realities? You know, I'm very suspicious of like yeah. any form of reality that asserts it's the only form of reality. Um mm-hmm. I, I I'm and it's so funny how astrology now has become so kind of mainstream because to me growing up, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, that has always been a part of my life. It's just really funny for me now to see um, other people be like, oh my God, it's such a thing that I've discovered. And I'm like, oh, I was born into the reality of, of astrology and like <laughs> uh, predeterminism. Like that was, that's, that's, that's my entire life. I wrote an entire novel about being born near the tiger and the curse of that. Yeah. You know, my first novel was entirely based on the, um, on how that kind of like built these characters and made these characters. Um, but yeah, I love what you were mm-hmm. saying too about like drawing from real histories as well. Um, Yeah, I feel like I'm often writing into a space of both abundance and absence. And I feel like I've inherited both deep silence and also storytelling, um, which is like an interesting contradiction to live with because it's on one hand, um, when I was first starting to write these stories that were um, very queer and very interested in like indigenous Taiwanese mythology, it felt a little bit like I I had to create my own language for it. And at the same time, there were so many books and so many works of art and um, so many people in my literary lineage who were, it's almost like a chorus of gossip in the background um, or like ambient (laughs) noises I'm writing that were all constantly surrounding Mm me. So I feel like it's this experience of both loneliness and feeling very surrounded or very embedded and and held by, by community, even if it's an imagined community. Um, So that's always a really interesting process to have both of those feelings. And I feel like, especially with my first book, but I guess it kind of continues through the trilogy. It was me writing out of that sense of loneliness of like, oh, I I want to build a queer lineage. I want to write. I always joke that my first book is, is fan fiction of my family. Um, and the way that people are constantly writing fan fiction in order to make all the characters queer <laughs> in a show where everything is like very not how they wish it to be. I feel like in some ways I was doing the same thing. Um, obviously it's not autobiographical, <laughs> but I was like writing queer right. fan fiction, um, of my family imagined version, um, out of this sense of sense of loneliness or out of the sense of like, oh, I want to make these characters possible. I want to make their lives possible. And I want to, I want to understand um, what it means to be very deeply invested in their lives and then in turn being very deeply invested in my own life. Because um, I think a lot of what I write out of is um, like there's this very violent Confucian patriarchy where the patriline is everything and um, everyone must sacrifice in order to like keep this patriline or this idea of a patriline mythologized. Um, and I was like, oh, but I I want to honor and dive deeply into this other mythology of the matriline, which is kind of absent from history, absent from historical records, or is constantly constantly like demeaned or debased. Um, and what would it mean to to honor that, but then also to be like constantly arguing with it, in conflict with it. Um, pushing back like so many so many of the intergenerational relationships that I write about are defined by like very deep love and this very deep like I see your pain (laughs) you see my pain but also I have a bone to pick with you like here here are the things I've inherited and here are the ways that you've enforced 
this like patriarchal family structure and culture in ways that I, I, you know, I really need to kind of like break out of the system of that. Um, so yeah, it's just this really interesting, like kind of writing into, um, into a sense of like absence or inherited violence. I feel like intergenerational trauma is like the ultimate horror. <laughs> and I feel like all horror oh, stories yeah, are kind right. of, they're all about intergenerational trauma in, yeah, in some for way, sure. like all of them. Um, uh, in whether it's like supernatural or not. Um, so I really, so that I, I feel like similarly, those are like the core of um, my writing ethos. And I also remember like I read about, there's this language um, that was called women's language. And I don't know if there are still surviving writers of this language. There might still be, I would have to do more research. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it was literally called women's language and um, women would like embroider it into their clothing and it was basically oh, right. Chinese characters, but in a simplified version. Well, people see it as simplified. It really was its own language um, that kind of was like taking pieces and like anatomy from from Chinese characters. And I remember reading about this language and I th- I was like, oh, my God, it's so incredible that they were like they had this language and they were like taking up all these things. And I had this like very particular reading of it. Um, that was a bit ahistorical and maybe just like what I wanted in that moment which is like, woo, girl power. But I, I remember le- read, reading <laughs> later that um, the reason why they were allowed to have this language or why it, like, it wasn't like adopted by men, it was only women's language, was because like men simply did not care. Like they they were just not interested. <laughs> they, right, they were, isn't that the way of it yeah, being like, oh, yeah. like, oh, why are you excluding the men? And it's like the men didn't listen yeah, or care. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't created out of this like, oh, you know, they, they want to take it away from us, but we, we've like established our right to do it. it. was, it was literally like, oh, we are sitting around together, sewing and embroidering, creating the fabric of life. And, um, we have this, we have this language because we are excluded from like traditional, um, like education structures and from literacy and all these things. And the men just had like absolutely no desire to even know what women were talking about <laughs> or they probably right. see it or like dismiss it as gossip. Um, which is why I feel like I, I love gossip. I'm very into gossip. I, when I was a kid <laughs> in second grade or third grade, I got in trouble. Maybe it was fourth grade. I got in trouble for writing like a fake gossip, like people magazine about like my entire class. <laughs> and I had one copy of it. I wrote it with pencil on like notebook paper and it got circulated around the whole class. Um, and I still have it because I'm like, that's my one copy. And it was so precious to me. And I was like, make sure to return the gossip rack to me at the end of the day, at the end of recess, it comes back to me. Um, but it was very like, oh, who, who likes who? Who has a crush on who? Who threw that? Who tried to throw that chair at that teacher? And then I would just like fabricate lies about other people. Um, so like 10% of it was truth. And then 90% was just like my tabloid imagination. Um, but I've been, I'm like such a big fan of gossip. Like I was a huge diary writer as a kid, like obsessively writing my diary. And I would just eavesdrop on all the members of my family and my friends and just like literally write verbatim what they were saying. Um, and, and so I have this huge affection and when I write, I try to bring in that like gossipy voice, the gossipy voice of like choruses of women or groups of women or individuals. Um, cause I'm very interested in like, what are the, the voices or the language that we've been taught to dismiss as like minor, frivolous, 
not part of history. And I'm like, no, listen, gossip is history. It is the only history I am interested in. Oh, true. In. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, tell me that any of the royal courts of history were not owned and operated by gossip. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, exactly. It's, like, it's just yeah, like, there's no way. records are just like gossip written by men. <laughs> Yeah, a hundred percent. They're just like, you will not believe what Marie Antoinette did. And it's just like, there's good and bad to gossip, of course. But I will say that, (laughs) yeah, I'm the kind of person who is like very oblivious nine times out of 10. Mm -hmm. So if, if somebody doesn't directly tell me like what's happening, I have no idea. And then, um, that's kind of how I approach Mm -hmm. gossip is I'm like, I have no idea, but One of my roommates loved gossip, loved to know what was going on with the neighbors. And so I would come back to the house and she would be just like hanging out at the window (laughs) or whatever. And I'd be like, what are you doing? And she's just like, do you know what they just said? (laughs) Like, no, (laughs) no, I have no idea. And I wouldn't know because I do everything in my power to not listen, yeah. right? Like I'm in this story, I'm one of the men who doesn't care. That's it, right? Is is that there is also a very strong and important part of the world where it's like, we got to talk, we got to get these, these are our conversations. This is what's happening in our day-to-day lives. Mm. And so journals, this is it. I have never had the ability to sit down with a journal because I'm like, I already know this (laughs) and then I'll just be done. But this, there's, to me, there's like a lack of curiosity to that, that I sometimes question myself on Mm. because I'm just like, you're not going to remember this in five days or 10 Mm. days or three years, you know? So I always think about that a little bit. And um, basically I'm just saying that like, from my perspective, what you're telling me tells me a lot about your writing because (laughs) I think that it makes a lot of sense that, you know, you have this kind of ear towards gossip, like Mm. this, the, the story of a fake People magazine might have surprised me from just about anybody else, but 30 minutes into this talk, I was like, that makes sense to me. Um, having read Organ Meats, that makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah, I like tucked it under my mattress. It was a whole, it was a whole situation. I really thought, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm a persecuted gossip writer. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I have been shut down. This is how Barbara Walters must have felt. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you were just trying to be ahead of your time and they just were not letting it happen. Hey there, listeners. You often hear from us about how you can support us. And typically that's with money, money, money. And hey, listen, if you got that money burning a hole in your pocket, join us at patreon.com slash queerspec. But did you know you can also do something that's pretty much free? It takes some of your time. Your time has value. I see you. But you can rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us five stars. Write something funny like, these bitches are so fucking cool. Whatever feels right to you. And then we will get closer to the people who need to find us. People are out there. They're desperate for the bitches. They're desperate. And you can help us reach them. Just make sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? 
Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you still keep a journal? No, it's so funny. I'm very similar now where I, as an adult, I cannot keep a journal. Um, kind of for similarly where I'm like, oh, I, is, this, is this the best use of my time? Like that that sense has kind of like creeped <laughs> into my mind. But I still right. have these giant, I have like a literal sack, like canvas sack full of probably like 30 journals that I kept when I wrote every single day um, in with like ritualistic obsession um, so one day I will probably have to try to revisit um, those journals. Um, I think oh, it'd be very interesting. They were all illustrated. They all had like stick figures of like, <laughs> like my brother with devil horns. Like I was very into drawing people <laughs> as monsters, which that, that should be interesting. <laughs> Future material. <laughs> right. 
Right, right, right. I was thinking, too, that it's like I always think of Anais Nin, of course, and mm-hmm. her obsessive journal keeping. But then also the fact that she kept like multiple journals and was like, this is the one I show my husband. This is the one I, I show love, Henry Miller. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I remember being being I don't remember how old I was, probably way too young. And I read A Spy in the House of Love. Um, and I was so scandalized, but upset. I mean, I think I'm too young. I'm 40 and I think I'm too (laughs) young to read that book. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that way too, where I'm like only someone who had no idea who she was and what, what the book was about could have read the book with such like, with such just complete abandon. Um, cause I, I definitely am like, oh, I, (laughs) I, I do not how to know how to reclaim that former self and that former <laughs> that former bravery. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, see, and I was thinking too. I think the first book of hers that I read was um, House of Incest, and that was. <laughs> I remember just being so blown away by the concept of the only things that she loved in other people was the reflection of herself that she saw in them. And I was just like, to me, that was like, as a gay, like 16 year old, I was like, what? Yeah. Like, what? And (laughs) just losing it. Yeah. And then like, yeah, time goes on. You read more and you're just like, this might have been a genuinely terrible human being. Like it's very possible that she was just a very bad person, but um, yeah. but also, I mean, who am I to say? You know, it was like a hundred years ago. I have no clue. <laughs> um, but to talk about somebody who would have gossiped with us, yeah. Anais would have gossiped with us, right? Someone who mythologizes their own life. I think that's what's really yes. interesting um, about people who have like published diaries. It's like it's about mythologizing yourself, um, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it turns out to be like her most remembered work or something, which is kind of fascinating. There's volumes and volumes and volumes of this woman's diary. Um, (laughs) And it still isn't even anything. They're like, oh, this is abridged. This is very abridged. (laughs) You're like, what else is going on in here? You know what? It's fine. I don't know. Yeah, I was reading Anais Nin as a young kid, and maybe that was why I was like, I'm not going to do journals because then in a hundred years <laughs> yeah, people are gonna know every weird thing I did. <laughs> yes, yes, but I I I feel like I have such a such a fascination with those published journals and also with with um like published correspondence. Like I remember recently oh, in college yeah. reading like the published letters between Virginia Woolf and Vita Sack the West. Oh I was God. like I must See- I must read Losing love, it. love Letters. Must. I must. Yes. Yes. I oh I, oh I love to learn about history. These two were hooking up. And it's like, oh, this is so historical. And you're just like, this is like actually weirdly a lot very hot <laughs> at the same time. And you're just like, these two were so into each other. Like, I love how everybody's always like, they were just like best friends yes <laughs> and you're like yes yeah yes. honestly <laughs> I feel like my agenda now is to bring back love letters oh yeah they're good I tried I 
<laughs> I did what I could. I already tried and then was like, all right, nobody writes love letters, like yes, really good love yes, letters back, yes, right? Like yes. they, it's like you send one and then you're just like, damn. I know. <laughs> I know. It's like, yeah. And it's, it's now like, it's like a love email and it's just different. When things go into your <laughs> Gmail, there's just an immediate sapping of romance. It's just, it. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's true. This is very true. Written it is, it's, it becomes something in your <laughs> inbox and it, it just, the love letter just whoop. But it's so funny because I, with organ meats, there, there didn't used to be letters in it. And I was so afraid of having a letter format in the book because my first book, B-Series, had, had this like epistolary form. And I'm obsessed right. with the epistolary form. It's like my favorite Same. form to read love and write. It. I'm obsessed. I love the way that you can just kind of immediately, you can just, it, it gives you permission to be direct in a way that I think other Mm -hmm. forms don't allow you to and which I love it's so freeing it's so liberating and I feel like when I'm stuck that's like my instant go-to writing prompt is to to write in the epistolary form but I was a little I was like oh no are people going to be like more more letters but I feel like I'm now committed I'm like you know what epistolary form forever I'm going to just continue continue with that um because of how how much I love it um and also how I feel like it's a, it's been a very like influential canonical form for me as well. So. Oh yeah, and it's fun uh, for me. I think that it takes on an interesting. Well, I mean, you bring up the love letters of you know Virginia Woolf, and you know that's not the only one, but nine times out of ten, that's all we know of gay people, right? Mm-hmm. Like back in the day, is like oh they had to like write letters to each other or journal entries or whatever. And, you know, it's like, that's why we know how gay yeah. Emily Dickinson yeah. was. You know, it's yes. like, that's, it's, there's a bunch of people who it's like, you wouldn't know if yeah. there wasn't those correspondences. Yeah. And of course, those are correspondences that often have been so buried, right? Like mm-hmm. where people are just like, oh yeah, this was their besties, but here's her letter to her husband. This is the real love of her life or whatever. And you're just like, okay, well, she's just talking about house stuff in this. (laughs) And then in like the one to the woman, she's like, I burn with fire, you know, just like all of these, uh, you know, very, um, very passionate statements that you really Mm. just didn't get in the other letters or whatever. And you're just like, okay. So I think that there is something to that is, is that they, that format, not necessarily is like owned and invented by queer people, but that there is yes. a very specific queer edge to that form of storytelling because yes. it's like that's our history. Yeah. That's the only history that queer people really have is like these two writing very horny letters to each yeah, other in the 1800s. Yeah, yeah you're 1900s. right. It is a form that really I feel like prizes interiority. And I feel like Yes. For for people who have been like traditionally excluded from like the public world, this this like deep expression of interior worlds is so is so powerful um yeah and I guess I was also thinking about how I I find something very healing about writing in that form because I feel like especially in the writing world and the publishing world we're constantly or you know any form of storytelling world or industry we're like constantly told like be universal like write for the widest audience Mm. possible be marketable like the more people who like this thing the more important and the more worthy it is of your time and your effort and your labor. And I feel like I, right. since publishing, have really internalized those messages, you know, because we live, you know, we're like, you know, making art in, under capitalism. And right. I feel like there's something about like, oh, here I am writing for one person, for one friend, mm-hmm. or this character who's addressing this one other person. 
like the idea of like writing for your friends. There's something I love so much about that. And I feel like I um, has really been important to me as a writer because I remember after maybe it was before my first book came out, like I ended up like reaching out to my friends to like create a writing group and we started to meet. And I remember actually our first writing prompt was like the Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, like in a, in a manner reined in um, prompt of like write a ghost story. And then she just like invented Uh science fiction. Um, We did not invent any genres, but we're like, write a ghost story. And then the next (laughs) month we would have another prompt and we would write these 1000 word stories. And I feel like I was like really writing it for them and being read by them. And it was so interesting because it was this experience I'd never had before with any stories where I was being read by people who like knew my life and knew me in this like intimate way and were like invested in me, not just as like, oh, this is a writer and this is your product, but like as a person. And then also I was like writing with this very deep specificity. Um, And I know that people are always like, oh, but you know, the more specific you get, the more universal it is. But I just loved getting to like banish the idea of like, here's your market, here's your audience, like here's how to appeal to the to the biggest right. amount of people, the most people possible. Um, and yeah, it was just, I, I felt very healed by that, by the, that <laughs> process yeah. that, that we developed. And now I'm like, you know what, write for your friends. <laughs> that is, oh, yeah. you know, if something is deeply important to one person, that matters more than, more than anything. Even if that person is just you, if it's deeply important to you, you know, you are a world unto yourself. So, um, yeah, honor that. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe it, it might be my lifelong interest in really weird art, but I definitely remember growing up and just being kind of like, it always matters that you like it the most, you know, yes. it just does. Yes. It's like, yeah, of course, none of us are really like writing only for ourselves, right? Like, you know, yes. it, to, to some extent, but it's for the most part, we're like writing for an audience and in some respect. But then it's like, well, maybe I'm really still just writing to myself if I'm writing for an audience (laughs) because you're like, look, in a hundred years, there's probably going to be somebody like me again, you know? Um, I don't think that I'm so strikingly unique that there will never be somebody like me again. But I also think that that's kind of who it's for in a weird way. But then... I don't know. Yeah, it's it's it as you say is kind of the best to just kind of try to divorce yourself. And if you do that by writing prompts, that's a great way to do it because writing prompts have gotten me out of a creative rut. Yeah. Endlessly. Yeah. Yeah, I totally feel what you mean. I feel like it's almost like speaking into an empty room. That sounds really sad, but I don't mean it in that way. <laughs> but it's cool to be in an empty room talking. I mean, that's like, the, it's like, yes, yeah, speaking to an empty room. But guess what? Like, I'm here, <laughs> yeah, you know, so. I, I feel like that's, there's something so interesting about that because I, I do feel like I'm writing for myself first and foremost. And I feel like, a, you know, a couple years ago, I might not have said that because I think I was very much like internalizing a lot of messages about like, oh, this is what I should be writing. And this is, you know, this is a product um, that has to be marketable and things like that. Um, But I I feel like now I've kind of very intensely and committed to making that choice to write for myself. And it's this interesting balance of like, oh, I'm writing for myself and I'm also writing to be heard and not necessarily by like a group of people or other people. So I'm I'm like writing to hear myself speaking into an empty room. Right. Um, But there's something so there's something incredibly powerful and transformative about that. Um, and it's so interesting. I'm like, I don't know, maybe it's cause I've like started going to therapy. Like, I don't know what it is, but I feel like it's almost like <laughs> if you value the opinions of others, 
over that, you know, that process of like, is it important to you? It is kind of dismissing your importance as a person as well. So I feel like I've had mm-hmm. this parallel journey of learning to like, oh, I matter to me. And then also, <laughs> right. it's okay that my writing matters only to me. Like those two journeys had to go hand in hand. And I think in the past, because I didn't really matter to myself, <laughs> other people were right. always, always were so much more important than than whatever my opinions were. Um, I I couldn't really be writing for myself, and so I feel like for the first time ever, even though you know, in I was technically you know just writing for myself, you know, especially when I wasn't like thinking about publishing, I was just writing my diary. But now I'm truly writing for myself, and it's because I've like been trying to learn to matter to myself more <laughs> if that makes sense yeah yeah no that makes perfect sense I was thinking about how for me writing horror often has just been a process of going um what like you find out what you needed to work through while you're reading your own story back <laughs> to mm. yourself you go oh um well there's all of this metaphor you know it's like there's all of these allegories to mm. what's going on in my life in this and you almost have to kind of uncrack like the code yourself right mm. like you kind of have to be the one who's you know, while it's like, I'll read, write a whole story. And then you look back and you're like, oh, this is about gentrification. I wrote this whenever I was being, Mm -hmm. you know, having to move apartments, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, it almost takes on this whole new thing because you go like, I'm writing this story. It's about somebody who's in a house, you know, and like all of this. And then it's like, you come back to it and you're like, that's not what it was about. It was about this actually. And I like that about writing, especially horror. I think because it I think it helps you kind of meet a point of catharsis in a way I feel mm. the same about reading horror often enough like I think that a lot of the things that are unsettling I guess in horror it's something you know I'm very unsettled by the world that we live in mm. so I think it's good to have these avenues where we're kind of exercising the parts that cope with that stuff yeah right? yeah it's it's this it's like it's horror is the space where the abject is allowed to exist. And it's like all the things that we don't allow to exist can right can has a world now too in order to like be and to assert themselves in a way. Yeah, I really love that. It's it's so interesting. I feel like I actually used to be more of a writer and he, my process has changed a lot actually since organ meets which is so interesting i was like wow i've been like jokingly calling it a trilogy but i really feel like i've like become another person <laughs> i've come out of right. my, i've come out of my trilogy cocoon um where i used to go and always writing like not knowing what i was writing about and not really being sure if i had anything to say and i was totally fine with that i'm like i'm gonna begin this i don't know what i have to say about any of this but i'm i'm gonna allow myself to be surprised and I think writing toward a sense of surprise um I guess like both humor writing horror writing like have that element of 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 surprise Mm -hmm. that's always really interesting um and then so what would surprise me are like oh oh I didn't know this is what I had to say or I didn't know what these characters these characters were really struggling with or really working through and I feel like now I'm in a bit of an opposite place but equally surprising which is really um yeah been a shock to me because I didn't know that this would be just as interesting to me where I feel like I'm now going into things like oh I have something to say I'm like boiling over with this need to say this particular thing 
but then how it's said or what elements come into play or sometimes like humor will creep in. Those are the elements that are surprising me. And at first I was like very self-conscious about this process because I'm like, oh, you know, we're taught as writers, like don't be didactic. Don't go in with a message. Like no one wants to be Mm -hmm. just like given a simple moral, like that's flattening nuance. Um, but the more that I've like sat with this process, the more I realized, oh no, this is just, it's like a new self. It's like a new part of me that I think needs to kind of be exercised and like played with and experimented with. Um, and I should allow, and as long as there's that sense of surprise, that sense of like, oh, I didn't know that would emerge. I can, I can keep kind of moving forward with it and seeing where it takes me. And I feel like this new self is actually, it's going to be so funny. It's born out of rage. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's so dramatic, but um, I feel like I'm someone, and this is kind of related to horror as a genre as well, but I feel like I was someone who was always really afraid of anger and very suspicious of anger and kind of always wanting to kill anger. Um, But I've recently become more and more interested in anger and also ways in which like horror makes space for anger and for these um or for rage um for like these these yeah for like kind of the the ugliest self to emerge and for that to almost be like the most beautiful self um and so i'm i'm like Mm -hmm. oh what, what would it be like to kind of lead with this anger and lead with this rage and see what emerges from it um, yeah, so I've, I've entered this new era <laughs> of writing, of writing yeah, my rage, nice. and it's been, it's been a very interesting <laughs> and illuminating companion, and I, I'm excited to see what will come out of it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, this sounds great. I was thinking too that there's something with writing horror where I'll be like, every character ends up being a worse person than I started with. And I think that that tends to be that I have a sense of optimism about people where I'm just like, everybody's just trying to get by. And, but that's always counteracted with a very deep knowledge of how messed up people are. So I think that there's these like moments of uncovering and almost it's like the way that you tell yourself like, Hey, maybe it's not okay that somebody said that to you or treated you that way or whatever. And yeah, I mean, that's another thing, right? Where horror really does have this ability to help you engage with things like that. Not just something that's horrible or it's terrifying or scary to you or whatever, but something where it's like you have these emotions, like anger is something that was like always obviously in my childhood, it was a very present emotion in my house, Mm. but it's something where it's like, you still have to deal with that. You know, anger doesn't, it's kind of considered to be this like flash in a pan emotion that you'll regret later or something, but it's like kind of the same things that made me angry as a kid make me angry today. It's like watching, you know, needless suffering in this world makes me really angry. And that's the same as whenever I was a kid and maybe I have more like complexity. I understand the complexity of it a little bit better, but there's parts of me that really just still doesn't understand it. And so I was thinking about that too. In organ meats, there is this, and actually I think in a lot of your work, there is this kind of um, like a struggle to understand violence, I guess, Mm. because you have in the very beginning of uh, organ meats, there's those scenes of like, well, I, you know, I took a bite out of the shoulder or whatever. Mm. And it's like, that is almost this moment of like, I saw a violence and now I'm doing a violence, Mm. (laughs) but there's not necessarily an understanding of why or where it's going. Right. And I think that there's something interesting about that and kind of the way that it plays out 
you know, in many ways throughout the book where it's just kind of like there it's there is kind of this. um, Yeah, I guess I guess the only way I could say it is like a struggle to understand. Right. It's like there is this uh, engaging with violence. There is violence. Violence is a part of the world. Mm. And then it's kind of just like, what does it mean, though, I guess? And, you know, I'm not sure that any of us can know what the actual answer of that is. But I was thinking about how how deftly the book is able to ask the question of like, so what, yeah, what does this mean, I guess, you know, mm. and um, yeah, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm, I feel like the characters I'm writing about are always kind of contending with knowing that the world that they're born, like the fabric of the world that they're born into, the framework of it is violence, um, whether that's gendered violence, colonial violence, usually an entwining of the two. Um, and I, I, yeah, I really like that idea of um, not necessarily, like, again, with the idea of not understanding, not necessarily coming out of it with, like, a pithy message or, um, right. <laughs> or like, a sense of, like, okay, this is the way the world is, therefore, you know, it, it, I'm very against the whole, like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger <laughs> kind of message. Right. Um, or like, yeah, because I mean, <laughs> like, oh, this is this is what formed. It was difficult, but it formed me. It made me a better person. This idea of like suffering as self improvement or self sacrifice as self improvement. Um, and I feel like right. the characters are constantly being told that and internalizing this message um, that suffering is meaningful. Um, that. It sacrifice and like negating the self is an honorable, noble thing to do, um, particularly mm-hmm. as women or as wives or as girls. And I feel like they're oftentimes, even if they don't know they're in resistance to that or that their very existences are actively resisting that, um, they're constantly contending and um, coming up against like the weave of those messages. And I, I don't know, I almost imagine it as like a cocoon that's like tightening around them more and more and more. And as the pressure of that becomes so intense, they kind of have to break out of it and, and transform, become their butterfly selves, so to speak, and yeah. kind of take flight <laughs> from that where it's almost like that is their, it's their launching point. It's their, it's their um, kind of um, galvanizes them into transformation in a way. And I remember this is again, back, back to Chinese mythology. Um, but reading about like in Chinese divinity with all of these deities, um, the kind of highest form of spiritual cultivation, the ultimate sign of divinity is the ability to transform. And oftentimes these metamorphoses are, are the result of trauma or the product of trauma um, directly caused by it. Um, not always, but I was really interested in, oh, how do I write about um the conditions of their transformations um, and then also what do their transformations make possible um, and what mm-hmm. are ways to kind of, yeah, write about the the total, like the kind of senselessness of this violence, like the senselessness of this suffering in a way that where it right. doesn't feel like, oh, you know, this is something that they can then make a very easy meaning out of. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I I will say that organ meats does not give too many easy answers, <laughs> right? Like it's it's definitely not a book of that. So you know, but I think that that is obviously one of its great strengths. And I was gonna follow up on your comments on transformation because obviously that is 
not just a huge theme of this book. It's a huge theme of your work. Mm. Like you see it appearing in pretty much all of it. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much everything I've read. Yeah. And uh, so I was going to say, right, is, is that also animals are usually a big part mm-hmm. of the transformation. So I was curious, you mentioned to me before the call started that you have pet parrots. Um, and, you know, we had a little chat about the importance of animals in our lives. And so I was curious because this is one of those things where it feels like it does draw from mythology, but it also feels like it draws very much from your lived present, mm-hmm. right? You know, you're in a house with birds currently. And so I'm just kind of curious, how, what what role do you feel that the animals play in this? Like, why mm. are animals and people transformation so compelling? Because that's all over genre fiction, right? You know, yes. Werewolves, yes. cat people, goes on, shape of water, you know, yeah. everything. But I was curious, how does that, because it does, as I said, it appears in pretty much everything. So I was wondering why animals, whenever it comes to being obviously themes of transformation, why do, why do animals play such a big part in it? Yeah, I, it's such a constantly like evolving meaning for me. And I feel like even though animals are the consistent thread through everything I write about, and I love, I'm like, how can I fit in another interesting animal fact? <laughs> That's my, what I'm constantly thinking. But <laughs> the meaning of, of that animal or that symbol or that presence is always changing and evolving and being inconsistent in a way. And I think that's why I'm able to constantly write about animals is because in every story that I'm writing, Mm -hmm. I feel like they figure in in a new and interesting way for me. But yeah, I think it's one piece of it is, again, my love for mythology and folklore in which animals and animal transformations were um, like the core of those stories. Like I love reading about, you know, the monkey king, who's this monkey god who is also kind of not accepted by other deities and is laughed at because they're like, you're not wearing shoes because you're a monkey. And, mm-hmm. um, and his ability to transform, he has like these hairs that can turn into clones of himself. And so being really fascinated by those forms of stories. But then also I'm interested in mythologies in which um, that the hierarchy of life is, is kind of interestingly, um, it is maybe not as hierarchical with this idea of like humans having dominion, dominion over the world. I remember reading, there's this one book called Hunting School, which is written by um, an indigenous Taiwanese author. And he, and I forget his name off the top of my head, but in the book, he writes about how when he was being taught to hunt, they would, they would slaughter the deer and then basically um, tell the deer like, oh, I hope that your offspring learn to outrun us, that your, your offspring, your, your people, your, your deer, your fellow deer become so fast. And so athletic that they outrun us. And next time we can't, we can't hunt you. And I thought that was a really interesting. um, I love that. And I grew up with really similar stories too of like, of yeah, like encouraging animals that you're hunting to outrun you, (laughs) which I love so much. And there's this idea that like, oh, actually the deer and the hunters are in relationship with each other. It's, it's this, Mm -hmm. it's this double-sided relationship. It's not just like we're out there to like kill this animal, take from it and have this like constantly take and take. Is this, there's this like, yeah, this, this like back and forth, this like parry, (laughs) this parry between them where it's like, oh, sometimes we will kill you and other times you will outrun us. And I hope, you know, I hope that you do outrun us. (laughs) Um, And Yeah. yeah, I, 
And I think those ideas of like relationship to animals, I'm really interested in. And then I'm also interested in the ways that like we, like most recently I was writing a story about, um, it's called The Four Horse Girls of the Apocalypse. I don't know if that will remain the title, <laughs> but it's about these girls who, it's are, a good one. <laughs> yeah, who are like really obsessed with horses and they become obsessed with, um, there's like this real life um, uh, horse racing star and her name was Zenyatta and she was like known for being like really big. She was like 17 and a half hands tall and she like beat all the boys at the Breeders' Cup and she would always start dead last. And at the last bend, she would like surge past all the other horses and win the race and she had like an unbeaten record for a while um and I was writing about how like Zenyatta was put on was like highlighted as a woman athlete of the year and she was like on the cover of a women's sports magazine like all these things and the girls are like processing or they're they're like obsessed with her they they're like part of her fan club and they make t-shirts and um they talk about like oh if you know if she was a if she was a woman like her achievements and her beauty would be contested and and debated and um kind of fought over but because you know this horse is an animal animals can attain perfection and animals can be innocent in the way that we will never be innocent um right and i i was very like heartbroken by that i was like not expecting that but i was like oh no see that <laughs> right. is the truth that is the pain it's like <laughs> you will never get to be as innocent as an animal oh no <laughs> Um, right. But there's just something also like the way that like animals are sometimes deified or like seen as more important than human lives that I'm also really interested in. So it's like this constantly, every single time an animal becomes like the pillar of a story, its meaning is different and it's, it's constantly shifting. Yeah. I, yeah, I know what you mean. It's like, we live in a world where like factory farming is one of the most messed up things happening is there's so many horrible things in this world but factory farming is just absolutely horrific but then it's like people are like oh but my dog I am gonna treat you know I don't care about unhoused yeah, people yeah, but I exactly. care about my dog They're like, and oh, it's just like yeah, exactly exactly but we're it's like our society is also pretty much built on animal suffering so it's just a very fascinating the way that people view animals to me is also a fascinating thing because it's mm. just like there's always a need to anthropomorphize it's like there's always this need to make them um human-like but mm. I do think it's a little bit more interesting when you go well what do I have in common actually yeah. <laughs> with the animals you know yeah, and yeah. Uh, that to me is always something more than what uh, oh look my rabbit is like me or something is like it's more interesting to be like in what ways am I like my rabbit and oh, in what ways do we complement each other you know yeah yeah and it's also interesting too because I so I was obsessed with animals when I was a kid. I had this National Geographic kids encyclopedia of animals. Oh, yep. <laughs> and I literally yep. carried it everywhere. <laughs> I'm familiar. Like everywhere. It was honestly absurd how I, I, I never let go of it. It was basically permanently fused to me, glued to me. So I was like an extra human person because I had like <laughs> this appendage that was this encyclopedia. <laughs> and my goal with that encyclopedia was I was going to memorize the um, name and the scientific name of every single animal listed in the encyclopedia. <laughs> and I actually did do that. I think in fifth grade is when I achieved it. I might have like started in third grade. And then in fifth grade, I could recite like all 200 pages, every single scientific <laughs> name for every single animal. I had each page memorized because I read it every night. I honestly, that level of dedication, where is that in my life now? 
Um, yeah. I was so obsessed with it. And I was like, oh, I want to be a vet. I want to be a zoologist. I want to be a zookeeper. And I loved my favorite things to watch were animal documentaries, but they were also the most harrowing and horrible thing for me because like oh, no yeah. one would intervene. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, the penguins are dying. Somebody just put them in a blanket. I, I, I like, I didn't understand. What you mean. <laughs> I was like, yeah. why are you not interested? You are part of this landscape. You're literally there. Why are you not saving these penguins' lives? Um, but I think what really drew me to like this world of animals and like other forms of consciousness and life and um I maybe it's like also part of um this feeling of like oh we we feel so much wonder toward what animals can do and um we I, I don't know I feel like we universally I would say most people have a sense they're like oh yeah it's cool that you know the prey mantis says this and the tiger t- can do that and we, we we're just like it's almost taught and ingrained in us as children to learn to see um, what animals can do with a sense of wonder. But then in contrast to that, like, especially like growing up, there were all these messages about like, here's what girls can't do. And here's what you should look like. Mm -hmm. And here's how to be, um, here's how to like, you know, adhere to this gender binary and boys aren't allowed to do that. And you're, and there were all of the, this sense of like the human body was not something to be wondrous toward. It was something to police. It was also like what we talk about is natural for human beings is so fascinating to me because people will be like, yes, patriarchy is natural. (laughs) And I'm just like, what is is going on in a way that is just because people have this idea that like that the natural world is like uh it's like um that we're an extension of the natural world but everything is filtered through our viewpoints so it's like yeah no kidding like you look at nature and the messages that you're taking are the patriarchy is in everything but obviously it's like because whatever you do look at that contradicts that you're gonna not you're gonna have a way of compartmentalizing that which is what I always think is a the most dangerous thing about humans right is is that we can justify literally anything and also just the fact that it's like yeah no kidding like I don't want to look at you know I don't want to look at a person I don't want to look at another at an animal or anything and just impose my own ideas on it Mm -hmm. because I and you will no matter what you try right like there's no way to really stop you from doing that but it's also this it's it has to be a more delicate balance than it's treated as i think because you have this uh, otherwise we have you know the science of you know uh people thinking that you know whatever whatever as yeah. you say patriarchy is real yeah. or like yeah, whatever it's like that's we, st- yeah. that's all stuff that just affirms them yeah exactly everything we say is natural is incredibly unnatural um, and you're right. right. It is like we cherry pick, <laughs> we cherry pick things. It's like we, we find, we like create whatever theory will then enforce our view of ourselves <laughs> rather than like right. looking at what is actually natural. Like just the entire definition, like that it's, it's, it's just, it's such a, like it instantly gives me chills just to hear the words, like what's nature and what's natural. Like it's immediately like, ah, <laughs> no, say, say, say nothing, yeah. say less. Um, but I think, oh, well, yeah. I, that also has a specifically like anti-queer message yes, into it. So yes, it's like, I exactly, think that exactly. it can be a pretty sensitive to queer people to hear yeah, somebody exactly, say the word unnatural exactly. because it's like, so what do you mean by that yeah. exactly? Yeah, but then <laughs> like, I think in, 
in response to that, so much of what I'm interested in is like investigating, like what are the kinds of violence that we consider natural and uh, which is why that intergenerational trauma and like the persistence and circularity of these forms of structural violence continue because we consider it natural. Um, and so oh yeah, trying to like denature and defamiliarize and to really investigate like, oh, these it's so absurd, like so, so absurd are things that I'm, I'm really interested in. Um, and especially like the lessons that these girls inherit, um, are just like so incredibly absurd sometimes. And I feel like I, I'm interested in like highlighting the absolute like absurdity and like surrealism of those messages. Um, and yeah, and I was, I think as a, as a kid now realizing like how much I was like toning around that, um, that encyclopedia, I feel like I was waiting or what I wanted in my wish, my most kind of desired wishful thinking wasn't actually to be a vet because that sounds really sad, like hard and difficult and at times sad. Rough. Yeah. But it was the ability to, ability to look at myself with the same kind of wonder that I had been taught to like look at a tiger with so much wonder and admiration and just like, wow, look at what it can do. But I think I feel like I never once looked at myself and been like, oh, wow, look what I could like, look at my own, look at my own, like, I can look at myself with a sense of wonder, or I look at, I can look at the people around me with a sense of wonder. Right. Um, but I had been taught to kind of like skew that gaze in other directions. And I was like, oh, I wish, <laughs> I wish somebody would see me walking across the, the blacktop while I'm pretending to be a tiger or a horse and be like, wow, incredible. <laughs> <laughs> don't come any yeah <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah. that's so funny I yeah I agree with you 100% because there is this kind of tendency where people will say something like well that's just what people do they hurt each other or whatever and you're just like well we don't even know what history is yeah. like we don't even know it it's like all of the time people are like oh people have been around actually way longer than we thought and yeah. it's like so really, most of the time when we're judging by the vastness of history, it's usually like the last like 5,000 yeah. years, right? <laughs> so it's just like, that's like a blink of an eye in the history of this world. And so why would you say that that's just what humans do? Like, do you think that we were never going to change? Do you think that we were never going to do anything different? And that it's like an impossibility. And to me, that's just a way that people lock themselves into what their lives are mm-hmm. and like lock themselves into this idea of like, well, people are hurtful, violent things, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I mean, you look at certain facts and yeah, for sure. It's hard to argue that people are very destructive, mm. but you have also this idea that that doesn't always have to be how it is. And so I think that that does play into your work, you know, that idea of, choosing something different, choosing a new reality, Mm. and kind of not presuming that you know everything about the existing reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think that, you know, honestly, it's been really great to talk to you. It looks like I could literally talk to you maybe for the next like three to six (laughs) hours. I know, it's so, this is so much fun. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just like, okay, more things. Let's talk about more literary references. And, you know, okay. So I do want to ask you for sure. I had to get rid of some of my ideas that I wanted to follow up on because there's just too much going on. This is, yeah, it's a very... um, listeners will have realized that this is a very rapid conversation where we're both just like ideas, right? But I was going to say that I want to talk about Wuthering Heights 
we brought it up. We've got to circle back to Wuthering Heights. So you wrote a book. <laughs> okay, so Bone House, right, is essentially a queer retelling of Wuthering yeah. Heights, but not exactly. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I think that Wuthering Heights is something where I don't necessarily pick up Wuthering Heights and be like, wow, everybody's gay. But I do pick it up and go, I see why all the gay people love this book so much, right? Mm. Like, it's a classic for everybody, theoretically. But, like, I, most of the people who I know in 2023 who have read Wuthering Heights front to back <laughs> are queer people and or big book nerds, yes. right? So I was thinking about this and was just like, okay, Wuthering Heights, not necessarily a queer story, although I think there's arguments that you can make. And also, though, a very queer story. But why was it so important to do a retelling of Wuthering Heights? Yes. What What's your history with Wuthering Heights? Why is it such an important book, you know? Yeah. Um, but also, what, what does it mean to you specifically? Yeah, well, first... First, very interestingly, it is immortalized forever as Bella Swan's favorite book. Um, <laughs> so right. actually, when I was a kid, right, right. this is not the edition that I had, but I, I knew a friend who had an edition of this book. They, Because of its ties to, to Bella Swan, they like reprinted Wuthering Heights with like a Twilight cover. It had like a rose and was black <sighs> and had the same font, which I was kind of obsessed with. I was like, I love the idea that, that Wuthering Heights is now like a part of this vampire universe. Um, but I think I, I, I read it. I did read it in high school. Not that edition. I wish. I wish I owned that edition. Um, and my immediate feeling was like a sense of deep familiarity. And um, it's so interesting because like there, there's a huge, there's a lot of people who are like, Wuthering Heights is not a love story. Don't call it a love story. And I think that maybe there's a sense that like if something is in the romance genre or love story, it's like not literary or it's like instantly less complex or it ignores all the like very complicated nuanced things that are happening in the book thematically. Um, but not to mm -hmm. me though. I feel like the, the genre of like a Gothic romance or a love story is um, very expansive. <laughs> We've been talking about expansive genres. Um, right. And to me, it was the repetition of the generations, like a literal, a literally repeating generation because they have the same names. Um, that was so fascinating to me. And I think that theme of intergenerational trauma, which is fascinating because I, I felt like in the genre of gothic horror and gothic romance, that was made even more explicit in ways that I maybe hadn't encountered in other pieces of Western literature. So there was something immediately about the book that I was like, oh, this is my life. <laughs> um, not literally in any sense. But I was like, there's there's such a right. familiarity with the obsessions and um, uh, the, the intergenerational relationships that and, and the sense of hauntedness um, that I'm really obsessed mm -hmm. with. And then later when I revisited the book as an adult, um, I noticed um, how Heathcliff is like, he's a very orientalized character. Like at one point, right. they speculate like, oh, is he the emperor of China or is he the prince of India? And they kind of have this repeating theme that he's like from from the East because of the way that he right. behaves and the way that he looks. And he's kind of like originless, like he is this kind of fantasy character in a way. Um, and there's also something like semi... Um, at times, like, he's kind of seen as inhuman as well, which is a really fascinating thing. And um, so I was thinking a lot about, like, oh, the Orientalism and the Orient, or or more like the Orient, the deliberate, like, ways in which the characters surrounding him orientalize Heathcliff. Um, right. That I was like, oh, I want to play really explicitly into that. Um, and also, I, 
as someone who's like kind of writing about origin and obsessed with premise, as I said in the beginning, I was really fascinated with um, this this character, this love interest, um, who has an origin, a very ambiguous origin, um, one that is constantly being written into and fantasized about and has this whole cobbled together mythology. Um, so that just, yeah, that just really, that, that, that was like, this is right up my alley. Um, and this is in, in, in conversation with all the themes that I'm interested in. Um, and it, it re- remains a touchstone. Um, and it's so startling how intimate this connection with this book is. Um, considering how like literally removed from me it is in, in terms of like time and place. Um, but yeah, that's why I'm continually, I'm continually obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah. I think that it does have this idea of, um, you know, class, I guess is mostly what keeps the two of them apart. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the only thing, but that's a big factor of the book is, is that Heathcliff is considered to be not of Kathy's standing, yes, I guess. Yeah. And so there is this idea of, um, yeah, just kind of him as like the other in quotations. And so I think that that's kind of fascinating. And, you know, there's this idea that these social mores are really uh, stupid. Yes, yes, yes. It's just like, it's like they're totally bound by them at every point in the book, but it's not to their benefit yes. that they are bound by them yes. whatsoever. Yes. In fact, it causes the book to be a complete tragedy. And also this idea that people are really complicated because everybody has a bad side mm. in that book, right? There's nobody who is beyond reproach in Wuthering Heights. Mm. So I think that all of those things, you know, as I was reading, because I had um, noted that you had written um the book and then I was reading organ meats and I was like there's definite Wuthering Heights in here yes. you know like it, it's yes. fun it's like there's definite yes. Frankenstein and there's definite Wuthering yes, Heights yes. and yeah it's interesting because I I kind of I feel like I came of age in this era of like paranormal romance was like the absolute yeah. biggest genre and in some ways Wuthering Heights thematically is very on par with paranormal romance this idea of like um to follow my desires is to leave behind humanity, to leave behind mm. civilization, but it would mean connecting with this freer, liberated, authentic self in a way, um, and right. which is like the essence of what paranormal romance is all about. And I think I was always very tr- drawn to that um, because I too was like, yes, you are right. Humanity, I don't know about. <laughs> I don't know about humanity. Um <laughs> I don't know whether, you know, the things that we consider um, human or that make us human are really the things that we should be, you know, deifying or um, there's just like an irreverence toward like society and um, like social contracts that I love so much um, about the genre. And then there's this idea of like this choice that feels very queer, which is like in order to embrace your hunger or your desire you have to in some ways like liberate yourself <laughs> from civil from civilization right. in a way that I felt oh it's like oh this is deeply queer <laughs> oh yeah see there you go I mean I was like why is Wuthering Heights so gay it's <laughs> like it doesn't quite make first that much sense that it is and now I'm like oh no it's gay yeah. like it makes perfect sense because it really is about being like get away from the the these pointless ideas right because it's like very clearly these two were supposed to be together 
the whole book is the horrible aftermath of them not being yes. together. Yes. And it's basically just that. I don't know. Yes. It's a whole thing. Good old Wuthering yes. Heights. Thanks for coming on and talking of to course, me about Wuthering Heights course. because, you know, it's the book that I feel like, yeah, there's never... I, you know, there are certain things where you go, okay, clearly we've all said enough about this. And then it comes back up and you're like, no, I have more things to say about Winona Ryder's Dracula. Yeah. I have more <laughs> things to say about, you know, Frankenstein, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, and, and in some ways our work will be this, right? It will be the commentary on the commentary on the commentary. Exactly. But that's, we that's can always go in history. new. That's what it is. Yes. <laughs> And we'll always be going in new directions, but I do appreciate, you know, there is something about, um, yeah, as I said, I, kind of at the top of the hour is the timelessness of your work where I'm like, I could place this almost anywhere. And mm. I think that it really is just the merging of influences behind yes. it, where it's yeah. like, I'm over here, I'm over there, I'm over there, I'm over here. And that's what I love. So again, Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. This has been an absolute delight. Wonderful way to spend a Friday yes, afternoon. Thank you. Um, thank you for all of your <laughs> insightful questions and thoughts. And I love all of the convergences we have <laughs> in terms of yeah. horror and vampires and genre. It's just, it's such a delight. And um, I'm really grateful for this conversation. Same. So I wanted to ask, you clearly have a book, Organ Meats, coming out right now. Uh, but what what do you have on the horizon? I know that you do several other things. I was going to get to asking you about, you know, teaching, yeah. magazine editing, all of these things. I was going to get around to it. We simply didn't have the time <laughs> because we were geeking out about 17 other things. Yeah. But yeah. If there's anything you would like to plug, I would love to hear about it now. Yes, yes. I So I have a novella that's coming out next spring. And actually, it is kind of related to, to our conversation because it's very anti-nature and anti-natural, what we consider natural, what we define as natural <laughs> or as the natural nice, order. Nice. Um, and it also kind of messes with time. It's called Cecilia. Um, it's coming out with Coffee House Press in the U.S. and then with... Um, Penguin UK, Harbel Sucker in the UK. Um, and then I'm currently working on a vampire book and also a collection of short stories about like the queer apocalypse. But um, I'm... Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and maybe some maybe some like aliens, intergalactic things um, a little bit. We'll see. We'll see whether my one arm into sci-fi ends up working out. But um, <laughs> I am kind of working on my own... Um, take on the vampire genre um so we'll see, see fingers crossed is, <laughs> i'm just like one copy sold already oh, because you, you. i'm going to be picking that not up empty after all oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean what a wonderful okay so that's like the name of the episode of course um <laughs> but so i was gonna say to you um if people want to find you follow you online where would you like to be found is there a i know that you actually have a very informative website which p.s i will note to listeners that there is a book recommendations based on your chinese zodiac yes. and i am a year of the boar year of the pig and was uh thrilled because i hadn't read the ones that were oh, on thank you. my okay, thank selection you for so i was that, like great i actually worked so incredibly hard on that post so i'm very you know it shows <laughs> it's beautiful it's a beautiful post um and i was like ooh, i don't know any of these this is great <laughs> like i love getting recommendations that i never would have known of so i was i loved to read it but yes amazing yeah so i 
kmingchang.com is my website. And then I'm also on Instagram. It's my only social media at kmingchang. It technically says it's a private account, but you can just like request. I just like let everyone in. I just, I don't know why it gives me the illusion of control (laughs) (laughs) uh, to have a door. Um, And my Instagram bio does say vampire ethnographer. So you'll know it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Okay. Well, I'm off to follow you on Instagram, but (laughs) thanks again. Absolutely. Everybody go pick up organ meats. I really think it's going to do wonderful things to your brain. It did to mine, Aww, at least. And you. I really appreciated reading it. I, I appreciate yeah, this gorgeous too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's so late in the conversation, but uh, who did the book art? Oh, yes. Um, so it was uh, the same designer as Bestiary, uh, Michael Morris. Um, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. I love that it's hot pink because that's, I've always wanted yes. to have a pink book. It's, it's a deep love. <laughs> Yes. Now you have it. So now a new color of book next time and or just another pink book. You could be the first to have three or four, (laughs) right? Um, (laughs) Great. Thanks, listeners, for being here. Thanks to everybody who's catching up on our horror month. This is a lot of fun and it's my little baby because, of course, I love horror so much. So I appreciate everybody listening. Thanks to the hosts that could not be here today, Essie Flinor and Monica Estrella Negra. Thanks so much to Priya Saxena, Kate Warner, Katie Taylor, all of the people who have done things to make this podcast be a reality. Thanks to the Realm Network, of course. Thanks. 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 Thanks to my rabbits. I'm just currently (laughs) making eye contact with one. So I felt like she was giving me a heads up that I had one more person to thank. Thanks. You know, like, (laughs) all right, cool. Well, thanks everybody. And we'll catch up with Kaming another time. Thank you so much. And goodbye. Happy Halloween almost. You're listening to Bitches on Comics, distributed by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Find more shows like Bitches on Comics by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at Bitches on Comics and on Instagram at at Bitches on Comics. Our website is brace yourself bitches on comics.com if you go there you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs i don't remember what it is i am in charge of updating the website however so good luck thanks for the heads up i'll go to this website now if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so by rating and reviewing us on itunes spotify or stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts you can also support the podcast by joining us on patreon Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. I'm Monica Negra, and you can find me at www.audreysrevenge.com or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. 
Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.